it'd be really helpful to have your Bibles open. So Colossians chapter 1 as we continue in our series. So Colossians 1, we're picking up at verse 15. As I tell everyone to have their Bibles, pretty helpful for me to have mine. So there's an outline on the back of the news as well. So there's some translation points in Dinka and Korean. So if that's of help to you, please uh, make use of that. But right now, let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much that we come to your word this day, not by our intellect, not on account of our accomplishments, not by our might, but in your greatness. Lord, please, would you be at work in the power of your spirit that we might even more clearly this day see the greatness of Jesus, his greatness in creation and his greatness in salvation. And so we pray in his great name. Amen. Well, a few years ago now, I had to head down to Sydney in the morning for a meeting and then come back to Toowoomba later that afternoon. So this was a really quick trip. I was on a mission. I made it to Sydney, caught the train, had the meeting, and then went back for the flight. But then, just as I was about to enter the airport, as the doors fling open, as I'm about to rush in, lo and behold, Right before my very eyes, Miroslav Volf walks out. It's already a bit awkward, the story, isn't it? Now, I have to tell you who Miroslav Volf is, okay? Um, So Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian. He's a professor of theology at Yale in the US. Uh, He's written, I think, one of the most profound books on forgiveness ever, exclusion and embrace. But here he is, right before my eyes, as I'm about to head in, in Australia. And so you'll be really um, pleased to know I totally kept my cool, okay? It was very cool, played it very cool. Um, As I saw him, as I set my eyes upon him, I raised my hands in the air and exclaimed, Miroslav, as if he's some sort of long-lost friend. Now, I have to admit that even I was a bit caught off guard about how much of a fanboy I must be. Uh, Not only was it particularly embarrassing because Miroslav was accompanied by someone who knows many people I know, but it seems that Croatian professors of theology from the US when they travel to Australia are not often greeted by exuberant Australians at the airport door. He was as surprised as I was. How do you respond to greatness? You might say, well, that really depends on how great something is. You know, great coffee, well, you might be willing to trek all around the back streets of a city and take your family with you, even if it takes some time, in order to get great coffee. A great musician, well, you might be willing to camp overnight in order to secure tickets for the concert. Great career, you might be willing to study hard, work late, and go the extra mile. Great love, well, you might be willing to move countries, change jobs, even become a vegan. In response to greatness, 
we're often willing to give up lots of things. But the demand of Christianity, the call of Jesus, is that we wouldn't just treat him as some sort of bolt-on to our life, but that our whole lives would become about him. That when we respond to Jesus, there is actually a death of self going on. Paul said, as we heard last week, walk worthily of the Lord, pleasing him in every way. Uh, Jesus said, whoever wants to follow me must deny themselves and take up my cross. The call of Christianity is nothing less than a complete shift of an allegiance in recognition that Jesus is Lord. It's actually an outrageous call. If we do not hear it as outrageous, then we really haven't understood Jesus' call. Jesus wants every aspect of our lives, every ounce of our being, to be reordered in light of who he is. Not just throwing our hands up, but laying our lives down. And I want to suggest that the only possible thing, the only possible thing that could legitimate such an all-encompassing call is if Jesus is comprehensively the greatest. If Jesus is not the greatest, his call to us, to, to bid his bid to us, to lay down our lives, it is too much. But if Jesus truly is the greatest, then his call is precisely the appropriate response. Uh, Jesus' greatness. This really is what this part of Colossians really sings out. In fact, there's plenty of debate if this section by Paul is quoting or adapting some sort of very early Christian creed, so an early statement of beliefs that was said or sung. But whether or not that is the case, it's clear that these words, with a stunning and poetic clarity, crystallise the claims of Jesus' greatness. Jesus is worthy of our all because he is supreme in creation, he's the ultimate Lord, and he's supreme in salvation, he's the ultimate Saviour. So first, Jesus is worthy of our all because he is supreme in creation. So let's pick up at verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now, when I hear these words, I think, wow, this is amazing, but I can be pretty overwhelmed when I hear these words. It is so densely packed. But really helpfully, as Paul unpacks how Jesus is supreme in creation, he, he gives us a headline, so the sun is the image of the invisible God, and then it continues to substantiate and lay out how that all gets worked out in detail. So let's start with the headline. The sun, so that is Jesus, 
is the image of the invisible God. Now, when you hear that word image, the word that Paul uses in the original language, it is icon. Guess what? It's from where we get the word icon. Amazing Greek lesson today. And it means something which is representation of something else. But to be clear, uh, the claim is not merely that, that Jesus represents God or is like God. No, the claim is that to look at Jesus is actually to be looking at and encountering God himself. So he's both human and divine. The more you get to know Jesus, the more you know about Jesus, the more you will come to understand who God is and what he has done. Jesus makes visible what was invisible. You know, it's often one of the biggest questions that that we can ask as human beings, and one of the biggest questions that we hear people ask is, does God exist? Or, or similar questions like, what is God like? Or do I even like God? And, and I wonder, as you think about that, the biggest question of all, does God exist? How can you possibly answer that? How do you even begin to assess your answer? I mean, this week, on your front lines, if you went around and asked people, what do you think of God? Do you believe in God? There'll be all sorts of opinions. Recent research shows that 55% of Australians believe in God. But the key is, how can I sift between my opinion about God and what is true of God? How can you sift between opinion and truth? Well, the answer, according to Paul right here, is that Jesus differentiates between opinion and reality. The Christian claim, and according to what we read here, is that you can come to answer the question, is God real? Who is God? What is God like? Not by embarking upon some sort of spiritual journey of inward exploration, but simply by looking at and examining the claims of Jesus himself. It is sufficient, perfectly sufficient, to look at Jesus because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So I want you to know, Jesus is not an image, not one among many, but the image. So the claim of Christianity is not Jesus plus something or someone else. It's not Jesus or something or someone else. It's simply Jesus. You know, in Greek thinking of the time, they really thought you needed more. That Jesus couldn't be both human and divine. Gnostics or Gnostic way of thinking, they thought, well, you need something fuller. Jesus can't be completely sufficient. There must be something more. In Western thinking, we tend to think, well, you just need to look within. But Paul refutes all of that. The gospel claims that there is no fuller revelation of God than that in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he shows us, just look how supreme Jesus is. So verse 15, we see Jesus is the author of creation. So Paul says he was the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created. You know, what does Paul mean by all things? 
he continues, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rules or authorities. Can, can you imagine anything that doesn't fit into that list? What does he mean by all things? Yeah, he means all things. There is nothing within or beyond our vantage point in the universe or the metaverse, no time, space or matter that existed before Jesus or came into being without Jesus. So he's the author of creation. Uh, the second way we see supremacy in creation, verse 16, is that Jesus is the goal of creation. So we know all things were created by him, next bit, and for him. So not only was Jesus active in creating, but the very goal and orientation of creation itself centres on him. All the spotlight is on him. Everything is for Jesus. He's the author, he's the goal. In verse 17, we see Jesus is the sustainer of creation. He is before all things, and in him, verse 17, all things hold together. So hear what they're saying. Jesus is the power who ultimately keeps creation going. Jesus is the reason why we have cosmos and not chaos. Jesus is the one who brings meaning, purpose, and coherence to everything. He's the author, the goal, and sustainer of creation. Which means... It's in Jesus that you're going to find all the answers to the biggest existential questions of life. Questions like, why do we exist? What is my life for? What point is there to it all? It's in Jesus we find the answer because we're part of creation. Which means not only is he the author, and the goal, and the sustainer, but he is our author, our goal, and our sustainer. This is nothing less than an unparalleled and comprehensive claim of Jesus' supremacy. Now, I find this totally mind-bending, even begin to entertain and to imagine and to delight in the grandeur of Jesus. I mean, uh, often when I go out uh, into the yard, at night, like I did last night, and it's a clear night, when, when I look up the sky and it's clear, you know, I'm often totally gobsmacked and full of wonder and awe just at the tiniest slither of the night sky that I can take in. You know, the, the tiniest slither that has been authored and is orientated and is sustained by Jesus. So, you know, at night, on a clear night, that there are about 5,000 stars visible to the human eye. If you have an OK telescope, then actually that jumps up to 5 million stars that are visible. The, the Hubble telescope, well, it can observe 200 billion stars. The James Webb telescope, so recently launched and commissioned, well, it is 100 times more powerful than the Hubble. But you know, in the observable universe, there are one septillion stars. I don't know if you use that number very often, but I'll tell you what it is. So one septillion is one followed by 24 
zeros. You know who created them? You know who they are for? You know who sustains them? Jesus. So to quote Abraham Kuyper, there is nothing in the universe, nothing, over which Jesus cannot say, mine. A couple of years ago, I don't know if you picked up on this, but a couple of years ago, uh, Russia made a claim that Venus belonged to them. Now, that's a pretty big flex, isn't it? Just pick out something, yep, Venus is, is ours. No, it doesn't. You know who Venus belongs to? Jesus. But you know, just as nonsensical as you might think it is for Russia to claim Venus as its own, if Jesus is supreme in creation, it's also nonsensical for us to claim really anything of our own, including our very selves, because it's Jesus's. There is nothing or no one, visible or invisible, past, present or future, beyond the scope of the sun, who is before creation, bore creation, is the object of creation, gives life to creation, and its creation's redeemer makes way for new creation. Utterly comprehensive. I think C.S. Lewis rightly reflected that when you begin to take that in and when you begin to see rightly just how incredible Jesus is, you discover that in God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. That's a right view of God. So how then can we possibly draw close to him? It's a bit like visiting Niagara Falls and if you were down on the water in the boat with your little rain jacket on, keeping a safe distance, but then someone says, come on in. How can you be drenched by the greatness of Jesus but not drowned? Well, we can because he is drawn close to us, because he's made a way. See, Jesus is not just supreme in creation, but he is supreme in salvation. Verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Most extraordinary news. So not only does Jesus have comprehensive authority over creation... Not only did he enter into creation to reveal who he is, but we can draw close forever because of what he's done. He's reconciled all creation to himself. So note that just as he has comprehensive authority in creation, he has comprehensively reconciled everything to himself. That word reconciled, it means a joining together of a broken relationship. There's an individual dynamic to that, so we can all be reconciled to Jesus. But there's also a cosmic dimension dynamic to that, as the Creator redeems all of creation. We needed to be 
reconciled because not only have we turned away from him, that's what sin ultimately is. It's not just doing things in disobedience to God and failing to do what is right, even though that is sin, of course, too. But the heart of sin is is us not recognising God for who he is and substituting ourselves or something else, something counterfeit, in his place. It's no wonder that when creation turns away from the author, goal and sustainer of it all, that the effects of that spill out and break down the entire universe. That's the natural trajectory. Yet God in his grace came to us and died for us in order that we might be reconciled. So the cross is where we see our justice and mercy coming rushing together. Justice, because God calls out our sin for what it is. He sees it. He sees it rightly. And he says it's not right. He's just. But also mercy, because instead of just writing us off, instead of just cancelling us, he pays the price, the price for sin, so that we can live. When Paul wrote, the, the Romans had made a sort of peace. But it was a peace throughout the empire which was achieved by the threat or by inflicting violence on others. But God makes peace with us on the cross by taking all of the world's sin, all of that violence on himself. He both sees the wrong and pays the price in order to open up a way for relationship with us. You see, it's all of God's initiative. It's so liberating. It means it's not dependent upon our achievement or our accomplishments, but it's all dependent upon what Jesus has achieved on the cross. And what we see is that when you put your trust in Jesus, we get caught up in that reconciliation. Our story becomes part of God's grand story. So we see we are brought out of our past. So verse 21, once you were reconciled from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. That's our past when you trust in Jesus. We're brought into a a new present reality. So verse 22, but now, so but now you are reconciled by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And then we have a future. We continue, verse 23. We continue as we trust in Jesus. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. We've been brought out of the past into a present relationship with God and awaiting a glorious future with him. That's where we are. If you're wondering where you are in life, that's where you are. That's who you are when you put your trust in Jesus. In, uh, on Friday, I was up at the kids' school here in Toowoomba, and as Giovanna, who's our youngest, as Giovanna and I were waiting for the older pair to come out from uh, school, we were standing in front of a really nice sign which has a, a really beautiful map of, of the school. And so I thought, you know, I'll be a really good dad, we'll do something educational. So I try to get her to, you know, spatially locate herself on the map. She's four, so this was a bit of a challenge. Uh, and what we noted, of course, that as she tried to figure out, I'm pointing out where are the familiar markers that she might recognise 
so that she can triangulate where she was. Don't worry, I used much more child-appropriate language, okay? It was really amazing. Well, it turns out the task is pretty difficult, and she felt pretty lost. She couldn't locate herself on the map. You know, I reckon we can feel like that sometimes on the whole map of life. In fact, over the past couple of years, it's easy to feel a bit lost and to feel quite off track. You might not be in the relationship for which you had hoped. Your career might not be tracking as you had planned. Perhaps retirement savings are looking uncertain. But if on these screens right now, I could put a big map of your life and say where you are, there might be a lot of markers that are missing from what you had imagined. Things might look a bit different than what you anticipated. But I could put a big pointer on the screen that says, you are here. And if you trust in Jesus, next to that marker that says, you are here, it would say, you are reconciled, seen holy in God's sight. That's where you are. That's the way that God sees you right now when you put your trust in him. I wonder how much more of the map really matters. When we know that, when we begin to revel in that, it affords us the most amazing security. It affords us the most incredible invitation, not of fear, but to delight in Jesus. See, when you see, see the greatness of Jesus, both creator and saviour, it means that we can be free to spend our whole life joyfully growing in and submitting to his greatness. Because it's his greatness by which we're created, and it's his greatness by which we're saved. It's not dependent upon us. His greatness is the basis for our present security and our future glory. You know, as Paul writes to the Colossians, to this young and burgeoning church, he knows that the greatness of Jesus was a really contested space in Colossae. It was really under threat. He knew that the greatness of Jesus was being called into question. You know, the greatness of Jesus, it is called into question our world too. But Paul doesn't want the Colossians to see Jesus something, something he's not. He just wants them to rightly see and to keep seeing who Jesus is. That, that he would be supreme in them. That he would be supreme in us. Paul knew that their faith, their faith is, it's contested as all sorts of things come up, as all sorts of things happen. He knew that their faith would grow or shrink in accordance with their view of Jesus. Our faith will grow or shrink in accordance with our view of Jesus too. And see, the way that the Colossians are to respond to Jesus' greatness, the way that they can 
make him supreme in their lives is so simple. Back to verse 23. Continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Hear what he's saying to them. There's nothing to be added. Nothing else is needed but to keep going to him, keep clinging to him. Our faith will grow or shrink in accordance with our view of Jesus. If you have uh, too small of a view of Jesus' supreme in creation, you're always going to be holding something back in your life. You're never really going to be taking him seriously for who he is. You're going to be looking for someone or something greater to, to satisfy in your life. If you have a small view of, of Jesus as supreme in salvation, well, two things are going to happen. You're either going to be crushed by the weight of trying to save yourself, or you just think that you don't really need to be saved because that's easier to accept. But when you see and relax into the glorious reality of who Jesus is, supreme in creation, and what he's done, supreme in salvation, you get bound up in the story of the one who has redeemed it all. And you get invited to spend your life singing the song of the one who is truly great. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for the greatness of Jesus. We thank you that he is truly supreme in creation, that he is truly supreme in salvation. Lord, we thank you that he isn't just the author and the goal and the sustainer of all, but that he is our author, our goal, and our sustainer. Lord, we thank you that we are not crushed by your greatness, but in your kindness, Jesus came to also save us. And so, Lord, as we look to you, may we keep on clinging to him. May we keep on rejoicing, being immovable in the gospel. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be at work in the power of your spirit, that each day our lives would be characterised by seeing the, the greatness of Jesus even more clearly, that we would proclaim that, that our faith wouldn't shrink because we're blind to who Jesus is, but that our faith would grow because we increasingly see clearly exactly who he is. So Lord, how we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.